resort to extermination. Fight cell by cell through bodies and mind screams of the earth. Souls rotten from the orgasm drug. Flesh shuddering from the ovens. Prisoners of the earth come out. Storm the studio. Burnt metal smell of interplanetary war in the raw noon streets, swept by screaming glass blizzards of enemy flak. Shift lingvals, free doorways, cut word lines, photo falling, word falling, breakthrough in gray room. Towers, open fire. Citizen, you are listening to WCBN-FM in Ann Arbor. Guilt, blast, pound, stab, strap, kill. Pilot K-9, you are cut off. Back. Return to base immediately. Ride music beam back to base. Stay out of that time, Flack. All pilots, ride pan pipes back to base. Well, it's a little after 6.30 p.m., and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And just sliding into my seat, Jim Dwyer. Sort of reminded me of that helm goal. He just slid it, slid, slid it past it that, that little guy. Yes, the uh, Detroit Red Wings are the nightmare that Joel Quenville cannot <laughs> awake from. How many times have we eliminated him in the playoffs? That's... Uh, an interesting trivia question. Yeah, three different teams he's been involved with as coach. And uh, with a couple of exceptions when Colorado back in the late 90s kind of took it to Detroit, we've eliminated him every time. It's amazing. I think he was coaching the Blues back then, but I could I could be wrong. Um, it just seems like seeing his well, face. He was a longtime assistant at, uh, at Colorado. Colorado. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway. Obviously, the party is over. That was a uh, memorable line that Barack Obama delivered at his first news conference, which I thought the media ignored. Uh, the, the news about General Motors is obviously not surprising um, and devastating. I mean, this is a company that's got $82 billion in assets and $175 billion in liabilities, roughly speaking. And... Uh, well, it certainly brings... The auto industry will never be the same. No, and it also brings pause for thought to the uh, expression that's been used a number of times throughout the various economic crises. Not to uh, paraphrase Richard Nixon's six crises, but uh, there have been a number of them. <clears throat> but the phrase, too big to fail. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes there's really such a thing as so big, it's likely to fail. Or too big, you can't succeed. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, there are other economic factors in which that phrase can be deconstructed or reexamined or so forth. But, uh, you know, you think back to the uh, sort of uh, days of hubris and arrogance uh, during the late 60s uh, Vietnam War era when such statements as what's good for General Motors is good for the United States. Uh, were wrongly dismissed by uh, center-to-left uh, people as uh, something along the lines of the absurd. Um, and, of course, uh, Obama kind of paraphrased that famous uh, expression. I forget who said that, who was president of GM at that time. Yeah, I seem to remember that it was a statement actually from the 50s. When, okay, when so General it's... Motors was, I think it was uh, one of the guys that ended up being in the Eisenhower cabinet as some official. Okay. Um, but 
we'll have to check on that one because it is a memorable line. And of course, that was the heyday. There was yep. a uh, suburban housing boom, a post-war boom. That's, well, the highway development uh, was yeah. essentially underwritten by the federal government. Yeah. And, and so, it was partly constructed for military purposes. Yep. That was part of the uh, goal that Dwight Eisenhower had. He mm-hmm. was sort of the brainchild behind it. And I'm sure that uh, that was the subsidy that allowed the auto boom to occur. And, of course, we had the baby boom during that, that era. The baby boom is loosely defined as people that were born uh, between 1946 and 1964. Uh, and I uh, wonder how many of whom were actually conceived in cars. Yeah, that's the truth. <laughs> Indeed. Dr- drive-ins, you know. Yeah. I'm old enough to uh, have gone on many a date in the, in the 70s uh, in the drive-in. And automobiles are part of our culture, no doubt about it. Uh, but things have changed. And GM is just simply a company that's misread the tea leaves one too many times. Yeah. Uh, they really needed to downsize this, this, you know, these multitude of brands that they have quite some time ago. They've been too slow, too um, optimistic mm. about the factors that were driving them slowly but surely into the ground. Uh, we know about the legacy costs. We know about the rising health care costs that were part of the legacy costs that are part of the liability problem. Too many brands. Uh, the health care uh, focus should have been a, a, an auto industry concern long ago, not fighting cafe standards which I think is a minor aspect to the whole thing. Yeah, if you look at the extent to which uh, European industrialized nations have socialized medical care, yeah. uh, you know, taking that burden off of automakers, manufacturers, and so forth, that's something that didn't happen here. It's remarkable in retrospect that uh, they never saw that as a viable uh, avenue through which to modernize, streamline, adapt. And, of course, one of the troubling things with the recent media coverage of uh, the demise of General Motors and Chrysler, because obviously they're in no better position, and in fact their position may be even worse, because I, I mean, I genuinely think that General Motors will make a comeback as a company that sells Chevrolets, Cadillacs, and Buicks. Apparently the Buicks are going to mainly be sold in China. Uh, they're exiting the European uh, auto market pretty much. Uh, and they've gotten a little bit of a bailout from the German government. Uh, G- Germany is going to buy Opel and con- and get some p- providing some bridge financing for a Canadian company that's actually uh, getting the bulk of it. Uh, the Swedish government is not going to bail out Saab. Saab needed to go long ago. Mm. And th- the Hummer, another General Motors fiasco, boondoggle. I think is emblematic of what's wrong, what was wrong with the thinking at General Motors. They just have had poor long-term strategic thinking. And, you know, just walking over here, it was interesting. I uh, walked yeah, a little half mile through part of the student ghetto and up Thompson. And I was looking at some of the cars, and it was striking to me how many Japanese cars I did see. But you know what most of them were? They were small station wagons, and cars are about utility. I've owned some General Motors cars. I've driven them. They're good cars, but there's something missing in in the message that they're delivering. You know, the television advertising that I see 
involving automobiles promotes horsepower. It's that connection, that strange male libido connection mm -hmm. between horsepower and sex appeal and thrust, thrust and <laughs> power and and there will have to be, of course, uh, um, interesting analyses uh, that I'm sure will occur over the next decade uh, explaining this demise. But uh, I think that that's in the heart of the problem. The small station wagon is a functional vehicle. Um, I had a brother and a sister, and it was interesting that my father, uh, a, a university professor who always was more interested in fuel economy than thrust, <laughs> we always owned small station wagons. And of course it's about utility. Soccer moms with three kids and two cats in the yard and a dog are not going to be able to drive a small station wagon, probably. Um, the soccer mom will probably go for that sports uh, minivan or sports utility vehicle that's a little bigger. That's fine, but you, there's something about the mix of products that General Motors has made over the years that's just strikingly out of touch. Too many sort of blah sedans that mm -hmm. make no sense. And you know, it's interesting, the best car that General Motors ever made, in my opinion, was the Chevy Caprice, but nobody bought it. Now, I drove this car thousands of miles over the years as a cab driver. Durable. It's a V8. It's an excellent highway car. So if you do a lot of highway driving, get a little less gas mileage than that uh, uh, fuel-efficient uh, Japanese vehicle, but it'll suit your needs. And you'll get 350,000 miles. Where are the cab drivers on television testifying about the viability of the Crown Victoria and the... Um, uh, the Chevy Caprice, the, the the vehicle that only cab companies and police departments would buy. Uh, durability, though, is not sexy. No. And so there's an, an, a new emphasis, and I think that um, Michelleine uh, Maynard, who has appeared a lot in uh, radio in particular in recent months, I think has had superb uh, writing in the New York Times about the problems with General Motors and the car culture. And I think it was fascinating... Uh, to read yesterday's Sunday Times, in which the headline is, Industry Fears U.S. May Quit New Car Habit. And it goes into the details about why people aren't buying cars. They quote a woman uh, in a city who got rid of her Toyota, interestingly, um, in April, uh, a couple of years ago. And she decided she could not afford the $250 monthly payments, even though she earns uh, $60,000 a year. Um, another gentleman is quoted, a school administrator out in California. He said he moved out of the house he li had lived in since 1983 and started renting a few months ago because of his debt burden, which included auto loans. I used to buy cars all the time. I took out loans to pay for them. And as soon as I'd paid part of one, I get another one, and I'd buy one for my kids, my wife, myself. I can't do that anymore, quote unquote. So there's something about this misreading of the debt burden that American consumers have, how cars are financed, um, the gas problem, the Middle East problem. These are things that the, the General Motors is unfortunately been asleep at the switch at, and uh, they deserve a brain damage award. 
Having said that, I don't think you can allow the American auto manufacturer, uh, manufacturing sector to just completely collapse at this time. And the reorganization that's going to occur under the bankruptcy is essentially a good GM and a bad GM. And they're going to, you know, it's, it's going to be painful to deal with the, you know, fobbing these uh, health care costs off onto the unions and essentially wiping out all of the quote-unquote equity that bondholders and stockholders have. I told listeners long ago that General Motors' stock was worth nothing. It's worth less than nothing. Now, yeah. You owe us. <laughs> And uh, so this, this will be painful, but not the end of the world. And I also think it's interesting. I'm just going to quote um, something from the Columbia Journalism Review. Uh, let's see, what edition is this? Oh, the most recent edition, the main June edition, which a couple of uh, pundits on CNBC, which covers business, were having a debate about the General Motors. And it's been fascinating to watch some of CNBC, something I've been doing a little bit more since the banking crisis uh, became self uh, became evident to everybody, um, to, to watch how they cover. And it's, you know, it, I don't know, half a million people watch this network, so it's not like it's uh, a mover and a shaker. But there's a lot of free market libertarian types that, that, that are allowed airtime on, the, mm. on the, the, the network. And this is all about, should the government be bailing GM out? Should it be bailing out banks? And of course, needless to say, it's, they're always the auto workers are always the scapegoat, which I think right. is wrong. Uh, this has clearly been a failure of management, a failure to communicate, a failure to foresee the mm -hmm. future. A failure to look at current events and anticipate what's going to happen. Yeah. Whereas Toyota and Honda and Nissan, to a lesser extent, but certainly Toyota and Honda, that do make cars here in the United States. This isn't just, you know, bashing uh, Japan here. Uh, they became politically sensitive to the problem back in the 80s when this was an ongoing crisis. Anyway, it's interesting. Uh, there was a debate between uh, a guy named Larry Kudlow, who's a very loud, yammering ex-Reagan official. He's a big believer in the free market. And he just, you know, he's always advocated, ah, just let General Motors go. Just We don't need it. The country doesn't need it. Anyway, he gets into a debate with a, another uh, a correspondent about the issue of class warfare. And they're discussing Wall Street's distribution of $18 million in bonuses for, for uh, uh, Obama's decision to, you know, go condemnation of this. In bonuses in 2008 amounts to class warfare, something we, we hear all the time in the media. Uh, Charlie Gasparino and Dennis Keneally agreed with Melissa Francis and Kudlow that it most certainly does. But when Keneally began obtusely condemning the compensation packages of auto workers, Gasparino interjects. Here's the difference between what's going on on Wall Street and the auto industry. He says, closing his eyes and shaking his head for a split second of contemplation, the auto industry did not destroy the economy. The auto industry did not destroy the economy. And that's the problem. Wall Street has. I have so many friends on Wall Street, and I hate class warfare. And Larry, you and I had this discussion three years ago when former Bears uh, CEO Jimmy Kane made $40 million. And you said, well, based on the numbers, 
What's he done? We thought he deserved it. But in retrospect, when you think about what he did, what they did at every firm, the leverage, another fancy word for debt, and it's not just the leverage, but when they leveraged with the fact that they destroyed our economy. So it's interesting how the auto worker has become a fictitious scapegoat in this whole unraveling tragedy. And uh, it is a tragedy. Well, and there's a historical uh, tradition there, too, of going all the way back to the early days of the century when the organizations, organizations such as the National Association of Manufacturers spend lots of money over the years in corporate-owned media bashing unions and propagandizing the American people against unions. And, you know, a lot of people compelled to uh, become union members to... Uh, you know, work. In fact, you've got the whole uh, weird uh, weirdness of language. Where down south they call it right to work states, where basically it's impossible to organize, and so it, the the language makes it sound like that's a good thing, right to work. Oh, you don't have the right to work in a state like Michigan because you've got to be part of a union. Well, there are advantages and benefits to being in a union that, uh, from a management perspective, are seen as cutting into profit. So uh, it's been very easy uh, historically to, to bash workers in this country, um, which is ironic as hell because you've got these iconic uh, figures, you know, Rosie the Riveter, she's a laborer, mm -hmm. okay, right down the road at Willow Run making the airplanes. And, of course, that's another argument that uh, you've made down here about these are the firms that were the arsenal of democracy. Exactly. You know, during uh, World Wars One and Two, World War Two, particularly. And, uh, you know, these uh, manufacturing plants aren't turned over to uh, wartime production. Who knows what happens, historically speaking, you know. Um, yeah, and if you don't have that capability domestically, um, you may have problems in the event that another Adolf Hitler emerges somewhere on the globe. Uh, I don't think it's going to emerge in Germany. Because I think they've learned the lessons from their mistakes, and I think that this has been one of the mistakes that the United States makes. And by the way, you know, we're endlessly hearing about taxpayer bailout money. Well, since these problems became obvious that the auto industry was in big trouble because car sales were plummeting long ago, there were problems last year when mm -hmm. oil speculation was occurring. Where? On Wall Street. Why? Oh, well, the, the Wall Street firms are... Losing money on some of their bad bets, and they need money from somebody who, uh, well, how about American consumers? They're dumb. They're suckers. They don't care about it. Easy mark. You know, uh, what's his name? Uh, you know, they, they, they care about, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on it. I'll, I'll think of it in a second. But, you know, they care about sex appeal they you know they they're, they're suckers they don't understand why celebrity scandals and infotainment yeah infotainment and you can see you know it's interesting from the graphs that uh, Michelin Maynard has in yesterday's paper uh, in the New York Times that recessions in America historically and she's got data here that goes pretty much back to 1970 coincide with declining auto sales and you can see that the recent months of auto sales, and I mean, every company's going down 30% of your folks. This isn't yeah. just General Motors. This is a problem of liquidity. They don't have any cash. They need bridge financing. Um, 
Ford wisely, and I give Bill Ford, I think, the fourth a lot of credit. He's been making speeches here in Ann Arbor at the U of M Business School for the last five years about the necessity to go green himself. He has the vision. That's the difference. General Motors was puttering around, playing golf, and trying to figure out how can we keep this thing, how can we kick the can down the road a little farther? That's been a phrase used about Obama's approach to the, the situation here. I'm not going to kick the can down the road any farther. But these severe economic problems that culminated in the Bush disaster, and how interesting to see the Pillsbury Doughboy, Dick Cheney, as uh, Frank Rich calls him, back on television opining about the economic um, voodoo of oh, Barack Obama, as if they have some sort of record to defend in that realm of mismanagement and stupidity. And uh, since we're on the Pillsbury Doughboys, let's give Newt Gingrich and uh, Rush Limbaugh, who are part of the troika of Pillsbury Doughboys, brain damage awards about this Sotomayor uh, dispute. That this is the quote that everyone's calling racist. I want to read this because this is just remarkable stupidity by everybody involved. This is not racism. All she said was, I would hope that a wise Latina woman with the richness of her experience would more often than not reach a better conclusion than a white man who hasn't lived that life. That is not a racist statement. That is a statement. She's not saying, I know better than, yes. or I am the only one who right. knows. I would hope. It's a conditional. It's just a opinion. And it, there's nothing racist about it. Yet this, apparently, this paragraph is, you know, and it's not going to derail this nominee. I mean, as long as uh, Newt Gingrich and Rush Limbaugh are leading the charge of the light brigade here, <laughs> or Custer's last stand... <clears throat> Uh, I don't or Dick Cheney for that matter. I don't think we have to worry. Jesse Helms voted to confirm this woman when she was appointed by George Bush's father. This is not some radical and oh, she's not qualified. What do you mean? She's in the same class as Alito. So that isn't going to have any credibility. No, they don't have any ammunition here. They have some stalling tactics that they want to go into, but Newt and Rush get brain damage awards. Lead the charge on this. Your attacks against uh, Sotomayor thus far have been nothing short of stupid and racist. Reverse racism. Reverse. That's the code word that they're now using. And, the, the, you know, the, the far right is they're, they're masters of this. Class warfare, <laughs> reverse racism, shock and awe, pro-life, which, of course, is back in the news, unfortunately, in Kansas City. Uh, You know, this stuff is classic, but it's important to dissect to understand the real problems and who's to blame for our problems, who's responsible. Hate to say it, the Macomb-Reagan Democrats voted for Reagan, and they've pretty much lost their health care. Yeah. And, of course, you know, I'm, I'm saying this in the, in the context that I think a lot of the auto uh, companies' problems are really syst- systematic, they're systemic, they're generational. These problems, the warnings have been given repeatedly. 
And it started with the oil embargo related to the Yom Kippur War and America's blind support for Israel. And who was in charge? Richard Nixon. Mm. What, were the, what were the consequences? Japan, that had about 1% of the market, American car market back then, the most important one, obviously, uh, globally, though that is, is, is going to change. Uh, at some point, China will actually buy more vehicles per year than America. That's where General Motors has some future potential. But that's way down the road. That can... It's well down the line. <laughs> it's going to have to spin over and over a couple of times before we get to anything like that. Well, and of course, the, the, the metaphor of the can, it's time to get a new can, is <laughs> to kick, is, is really the message here. And you've sort of uh, implied that with reference to, to Bill Ford's uh, you know, longstanding motto for some time is to go green, to go green, and uh, to reinvent. And uh, Michigan has that potential uh, to become a new sort of energy magnet. Uh, there's all sorts of experimental developmental technologies regarding wind power. Uh, Michigan's primely placed for that. Detroit's always going to be there. Um, whether or not it's, you know, the arsenal of democracy, or the, uh, the, the manufacturing center of whatever remains of the auto industry, but as uh, has been pointed out before, it's sort of the uh, connecting city to Canada, our number one trade partner. Uh, it's a natural, you know, there's a lot of uh, maritime traffic that goes through the Great Lakes, you know, to Chicago, grains, agricultural products going in and out, all sorts of things. So Detroit's going to be there, but what is the Detroit of the future? What is the automotive industry of the future? This is a sort of bizarre opportunity, bizarre because it's unfortunate and, and painful, mm -hmm. um, although not unexpected, uh, to reinvent a lot of things and to reappraise systems that have failed and to uh, try to establish and put in place systems that have uh, viable futures instead of just sort of spinning an old model uh, until it's so ragged that it, it collapses like a can that's been kicked one too many times down the road. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing is this is going to affect far more regions than just Michigan. Um, sure. You know, the metaphor that's been used a lot is that, hey, these car dealers in some of, the, some of your small towns in Ohio and, and Indiana— and these are other states that are going to be affected by this. Um, they pay for the Little League, yeah. Uh, for instance, uh, PBS had a very interesting piece about the arts in the city of Dayton. The General Motors has been underwriting the ballet and the orchestra there for years. Jazz festivals. This stuff is going down, folks. Yeah. And the idea that this is just you know you can pin all this uh, all the blame on the big three is also a myth. I mean, California's got. Massive problems. They just had a referendum in which they don't want to raise the taxes, so they've got to cut spending by $24 billion in the state to balance their budget. That's a lot of money compared to the, the problems that Michigan's got. And you're going to see some real economic pain in California continuing. California has a higher foreclosure rate, by the way, than Michigan. Hmm. And, and no auto industry to blame it on. Yeah, and well, yeah, and the auto industry that they have is is Japanese. Yeah. Um, but you know their sales are going to go way down and have gone way down. The difference is they they uh, will are in a better position to to adjust uh, and don't have the legacy costs. Mm. Um, why did the you know the they had to kick the can down the road to save General Motors for a while. 
But, it, you know, the hope that auto sales were going to recover just was was a myth. I mean, job losses just keep continuing to rise. We're in a recession. It continues. I don't understand this. You know, Wall Street went up way big time today. I don't know why. <laughs> Makes no sense to me. It's crazy. Um, oh, well, consumer sentiment's gone up a little bit in the last couple of months, and retail sales aren't that bad. Well, actually, they're they're terrible. You know, I've got a chart for you when I go down the 28 companies. Oil, of course, went up. In the mall of malls. Oil went up. And you see, that is another thing where the United States needs to actually publicly have a debate about this. Um, how do we deal with these fluctuating oil prices that create problems for the auto com companies? What, you know, are we, where can we build mass transit? If you live in a big city, you, you can live without an automobile. But if you live in some of the places in the United States, you have to have a car or a vehicle. If you're, uh, you know, working on a farm, you got to haul manure or put hay out for the cows. Goods I mean, to market, et cetera. You know, a fuel-efficient uh, hybrid vehicle isn't going to do the job for you, I don't think. And nobody knows how those things last uh, in you know, winter after winter. I mean, there, there, there could be problems even with the hybrids. Uh, we don't know yet, but Ford's got the vision. They've, they're, they've got a couple of hybrid uh, vehicles, electric hybrid vehicles that are supposedly going to be out there next year. So he's thinking in the right, uh, the right area. Of course, the other remarkable thing about the increase in the oil price is how immediate the price at the uh, pump goes up. Where if you think logically. The gas that's underground in the tank at the gas station on the corner sure. uh, was bought bought months many, ago, many, many months yeah. ago, uh, at the lower rate. And so here's another example of the American consumer being strapped over a barrel and uh, savaged, uh, you know, nickel by dime. Yeah, and there's no evident increase in demand uh, here in the United States. I think even though we're coming into what they used to call the summer driving season, uh, people are driving less still. Yeah. Uh, and that's good. There have been some, some benefits uh, from the high gas prices of the last uh, year or so. So what's what it's what it occurs to me, and obviously this is politically unviable, no uh, politician uh, working in Washington today is going to propose this, but I am in favor of a fixed cost for gasoline. If the prices go below it, put the money into infrastructure and roads. You've got increased tax revenue. Hmm. If they go above it, you know, then occasionally you need to make some cost of living adjustments. But if the price were fixed, then consumers could make more rational decisions about vehicles. That's just my opinion. Because if you have this yo-yo effect where the prices go down in December, gas prices we're talking about in November, and then they go back up in the summer like they always do. But last year, they, you know, let's remember, last year the oil price was, was uh, per barrel was up near $150 a barrel. Yep. It's going back up near 70 folks. Anyway. Um, and if uh, China is going to become uh, an increasingly large market for car purchases, you can't really count on this oil price dropping much lower than it is now, again, because right. the, the continued demand is going to, uh, and there's some interesting developments regarding uh, the pumping, uh, we'll have to talk about this next week, uh, the pumping of uh, 